Hey, Real Talk listeners, welcome back. We are here talking through another fantastic series. We're just going to continue momentum here on some different types of discussions. Michelle, we occasionally go through and talk through different just random topics over a period of time through our series. This is going to be a little bit about that uh, similar for our listeners. Michelle, can you believe we are on episode 72 right now? Like incredible. Like we've had 72 podcasts to give advice on in the last year and a half of the pandemic. Like it's insane. It is very crazy. It's exciting at the same time as well. Have we ever told them the podcast famous story where Brianna told me that we didn't get to declare we were famous? So guys, we've sort of changed our platform in the design a couple times, right? Like we changed it at the beginning of the new year. We do that because we want to make sure we're giving you guys practical tips you can use regardless of whether or not you hire us. I mean, obviously, if you have bigger problems or challenges you can't tackle, the goal is for you to reach out to someone um, like us. And I'm going to say like us specifically because you've learned in 72 episodes that we have a very clear picture of HR. We see HR as a guiding post for how people are treated, but we don't see HR as owning the people experience. The the leaders of the company own that experience. Our job is just to guide you. And Marie and I also passionately believe that, I don't know why I'm trying to be so professional right now, might as well, might as well just say what I'm saying, but we believe that if you were lucky enough to have people work for you that are willing to help you achieve your dream as a business owner, it's your responsibility to take care of them. Um, and that's what that people philosophy is about. So we changed the platform a couple of times, but what an incredible opportunity to give people tips on something that is pretty real to date in time. We have adjusted based on some situations that have been happening in the world so that you can get the advice as you need it. So for us, I'm speaking for you, Maria, but I'll speak just for myself, I guess. This has been incredible. It's been a great outlet for us to just get advice out there quickly. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I get a lot of questions from different people um, at different conferences I go to or different um, conversations I have from people who are working in companies and need some HR advice. I don't know how many times I see on social media like, hey, need some HR advice, like my my leader's doing this. Or, uh, you know, different types of advice for different business owners or other HR people. I mean, in our profession, we bounce ideas off of each other so much. And so sometimes it's just great to come to a podcast. Now, let's be honest, Michelle, we don't give away our entire secrets. Like we keep it a little bit high level. We tell you what we think. But we do give some uh, opportunity and, and advice to those to be able to at least, you know, find the resources and provide guidance. So we've been truly creative in our different um, series to be able to give people a foundation on where to start. Yep. And, you know, I think it's 
it's easy for people, um, and this is what I see particularly with small to medium businesses who don't or have never had HR, is that there's an assumption that you just pick like your nicest person in the office, the nicest leader in the office that's good with people, and they can manage that human resources side of the world. But there, there really is so much more that goes into establishing and running a people philosophy every single day. You know what? The thing is, it, it is even always be about being the best people person. Sometimes it's about having the hardest conversation and that has nothing to do with being a people person. Um, sometimes it's about being strategic. Sometimes it's even about pushing back with leaders and not your employees. So it isn't as easy as just saying, oh, he or she is really great with people. We'll let them handle all of our employee relations issues. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, when we take a look at SMB um, for you listeners, small, medium businesses um, to have discussions with, I think that's that's the most critical component when you take a look at who's how are you being effective and efficient in your organization, but do you have the right tools and resources and the most professional experiences and, you know, making sure you're doing the right thing as you're scaling and growing. So critical components, Michelle, today's topic we're talking about is really interesting because leaders need to understand this. And Michelle, you probably have a fantastic story to share, maybe not yours personally, but what's transpired in previous organizations. But um, today we're talking about budgets and specifically, you know, obviously there's a number of components that help leaders and organizations. So when you talk about budgets just overall, it's critical for you as a leader to think about your budget. It's also critical when planning and forecasting what that looks like how you get the right tools and resources to develop yourself as a leader, as well as what does controllable costs look like and how you can really elevate that. So that's what we're talking about today. But really what kind of speared my idea around this is the lack of education around the L&D budget. Um, Michelle, you have probably some knowledge of organizations that have gone through a downsize in their L&D department. And we don't necessarily have to name any specific companies per se, but it's happened before. And you see the turmoil that happens to individuals. And, and I'd love for you to kind of highlight a little bit of what you've observed when organizations decide, oh, we have to cut our budget. And what's the first place to go? Well, let's take a look at our least revenue generating departments and take a cut there and L&D or talent development, depending on your organization, talent management seems to always be the first one cuts. So Michelle, why is that? And what the hell happens to the department when that happens and the company? You know, it's interesting that everyone knows this. Like if you are if you work in support roles, you go into it with people telling you stuff, particularly human resources. People will tell you out of the gate, you know, if anything goes wrong, it's the first department cut. It's the first department to lose money. So one of the things that I think both of us try to do, Maria, is we try to see 
both sides because if you can try to understand both sides of why something happens it makes it easier to present a solution that's good for both sides so like you said least revenue generating you are not going to cut your operators at least not dramatically because if you don't have product if you don't have uh, someone to deliver your service whether that's restaurant or um, a retail environment then you're not going to make money and then you're going to have to cut even more people so out of the gate you know ops isn't going anywhere at least not a lot right and so then you you um it's i'm using my hands right now i know you guys can't see them but the way i see an organization the center is is your customer right and so your your decision should be made first and foremost kind of like what is it that your customer is going to pay for you that's what you have to start by thinking about but then in my mind that next layer is the group that does the frontline work and i'm trying to use a phrase that's generic enough to fit in any industry so in some industries that could be truly on a line in manufacturing making a product it could also be your wait staff in a restaurant if that's what we're talking about it could be your sales team if all you do is like sell like in insurance, you sell policies. So depending on what it is, you've got kind of that group that is on the front line and they're the contact between the customer and the money. And then in my mind, you have just a ton of support folks that fall around that circle. And so again, depending on your industry, it could be marketing, research and development. It could be quality you could, well, I hope you have a health and safety team and an HR team, right? And so when you start making tough choices as a leader, you know you can't remove that first circle because somebody's got to take the money. You know you can't, when you get to that second circle, you're like, well, if we take away marketing, then who's going to send out all the sales and the promos and the advertisement so that we can get more business. And then so you really do start looking at those other groups and you say, which ones have a clear direct impact on transactions? And one of one of the hardest departments to pinpoint that direct contact happens to be your talent management team. And so I think that is from a owner perspective, that is why you start to look at that. I think there's also a lot of justification that happens. Actually, I don't think I know where companies, particularly in larger organizations, they say things well, like the policies are always in place. We'll just give people extra duties or responsibilities. We'll just streamline that department and cut it down a little bit because there's almost this feeling that We've already established our policies. We already have our employees. Why do we need to keep doing that? So that's from what I've seen and what I've talked to with some of our clients, that's absolutely the thought process before you get into it. But going back to kind of those layers or those circles, and Maria, your question about that breakdown, right? Your HR department, so your sales department is out there 
hustling to get new clients or, or new contracts or new customers, right? Your marketing department is creating advertisement to get the word out on what your product is. Your R&D department is researching innovative stuff. Your quality department's doing this, right? But there's that center group of people that is keeping your customer happy. And guess who supports that center group of people and makes sure they're happy? Almost always, it's your HR team. So the second you start removing HR from the equation, who's the group that is following up to make sure that they're still engaged, that they're getting the resources they need, that their leaders are being taught to be effective? All of those pieces start to strip away. And that one group right there in the center that was keeping your customers happy, that group is no longer happy. And when that group is no longer happy, I can guarantee your customers will start to become less happy. And so in my mind and with people that I've um, worked with in the past, that's where it happens. Now, I've also seen them make smart decisions within HR or try to, right? So in this environment right now, it would never be my recruiters that I got rid of because, dude, you need those people right now. And that'll be another podcast this series is to talk about why you need those people because of all of the things that happened in 2020 from the pandemic to the political climate to the social unrest all those things are associated to feelings and emotions and those things cause stress stress causes employee frustration and disengagement so i think as a result of the reality of our climate, you can't afford to lose your employee relations people. So when you're looking at that HR department and all the different specialties within it, starts to narrow us down and leave us with one key group, learning and development. And it is super easy to say, we'll pick up on that when we can. And I think that's where a lot of people end up, Maria. Yeah, so you've actually been a part of an organization that's downsized L&D. What transpired during that downsize? Because then they scaled it back up. It's actually sort of brilliant what happens, and it should not be surprising. And depending on your industry, I'm going to suggest that you go talk to a few departments, whether it is health and safety, quality, or your legal team, because in a lot of instances, we're not just talking about high-performance development. Like, Maria, you and I love some of that incredible leadership stuff around coaching, executive coaching, and pushing people to the next level. But those aren't the only misses, guys. There are compliance pieces that result in an easy... Like if if you were to to scale the risk, the smallest risk, you get some fines because you missed some compliance. If you're in California, that's not a small fine, by the way. And if you don't know enough about your state, and it's not just California, but California is one of them, right? You start to miss some of those compliance pieces in California, then you start paying penalties for the corporation per employee, like those fines can get pretty expensive. But then we're also talking about compliance training that allows you 
to continue to operate your business. Again, no names, but um, a company that I worked for, for probably, or worked we worked with for almost 18 months. Some of their plants had a legitimate fear of being closed down if OSHA or the FDA walked through their door because they weren't compliant with training. And so now you're looking, you're looking at some fines, but now you're looking at plant closures until you become compliant. But then let's take it to the next level. And I've seen this happen in organizations where you're not getting safety training completed, which is, depending on your industry, could be a requirement from the government. And there's a reason for that. And so now you have new employees playing with combustible chemicals that don't understand the consequences of their behavior. And the next thing you know, you've got an employee who is scarred for life or losing a limb because the training that helps them do their job correctly is not done. So I'm glad that you pushed to that question, Maria, because I think it is always easy to say when you take out training, you think, oh, I'm just taking out the fun stuff, right? I mean, like, it's just fun. It makes them happy. We'll just do it shortly. But I've seen significant injuries that have impacted people's ability to do their job, to live their life, and have changed the way their family has to care for them as a result of not getting a required element of their training to do their job effectively. So yeah, it could be easy. It could be a fine, but it could also be a loss of life. So some leaders or people listening in to this podcast may say, well, there's so many companies out there that can automate this for us and make it digital version and we can do, you know, web-based trainings versus instructor-led. Why do we need instructors? Why am I paying a salary and benefits on top of that? That fringe is expensive for us. So Maria, like you mentioned, we don't give away all of our secrets here, but we actually have an assessment that we go through when we're working with someone specifically on training And one of the elements of that assessment is to determine who the audience is, how many people they are, how they best learned, what the content is, why the content has to be delivered. And then as a result of that, we choose the modality, the training modality that makes the most sense. So for the record, I am a big fan of compliance being digital. I will tell you all day long, compliance should be offered in a digital format because the answers will never change. No one will ever get misinformation and people will never forget to say what's important. Now, it does mean digital interactive combined with constant knowledge checking and follow-up to make sure that they're comprehending what they learned. But there is absolutely a time and place for each type of training um, modality, whether it is instructor-led or virtual or or even self-paced. We've worked programs where 
we've given high performance leaders a guide and we said, here's some activities that could strengthen these competencies. Go schedule it yourself because you're dealing with someone who is already high performing and it's easy for them to take their development to that next level. That would be the first piece that I would say. The second piece of why, even if you went 100% digital, just go with me on this for just a second, right? Once you think about whatever system you use in your company right now from an operational perspective, because all of you have something where maybe you track production or you track sales or whatever it is, you've got some kind of operational system. Imagine for a moment if you had this operational system, but nobody used it and nobody knew how to use it. Then you're paying all of this money and you're not getting the tool that you need to be successful because nobody's using it. Even if your company has an LMS or a way, a learning management system or a way to deliver content electronically, people still have to design it. Someone still has to generate reports to see if the training is compliant. Think about the number of, like people don't even think about what goes into setting up an LMS. So like, pause with me for just a second and think this through. Let's use manufacturing because there are usually a significant number of positions in manufacturing. Like you can, depending on the the, the actual solution you're offering, I've seen upwards of eight, 900 job codes in a manufacturing environment, okay? So every one of those positions has training that they need to do to do their job effectively. And it is different for every single one. Because if I'm a compression operator, it's going to be completely different than if I'm a packaging operator. So you've got to have somebody, first of all, that can learn the nuances of all those different training. Then they have to load it into a system. Guys, it doesn't just magically appear there. You don't snap your fingers and go, hey, all the positions are in there. But then you also have to build the structure of that learning management system so that when someone is hired to that job code, it automatically triggers the curriculum that they have to take with deadlines and then follow up so that their leaders know that they've done it. So even if you were to offer everything in a digital format, and for the record, you shouldn't, because not everybody learns that way and it's not always appropriate. But even if you did, you've still got to have a learning and development team to create that system. It's true. And I think, um, you know, when you take a look at learning and development, it's not necessarily going to eliminate the need for you to have a team, facilitators, administrator, whatever the case may be. I think everyone learns in a different format. I've seen that actually be the case where people have incorporated web-based modules and then quickly veered back because employees have questions. They have you know, skill sets that they need elevated. They want to talk through scenarios, especially when you're talking with leaders or people learning new, new different skills or elevating themselves. And I also think a pain point in removing your facilitation um, and, you know, taking a look at downsizing some of your models, even if they are course, um, you 
literally create challenges in your organization. Some of the highest reasons for turnover in organizations right now are lack of growth and development. Where do you think they get that from? They get that from development team, right? Within your organization, resources, tools, your innovation needs to continue forward with the momentum. And, you know, I know we have a couple of other topics to talk through, so I don't want to continue on this rant that I could go on all day. But I think it's really critical as there's high turnover going on in organizations for lack of growth and development that you essentially focus on what their needs are, because then you are going to be like BlackBerry or a Nokia instead of an Apple and a Samsung getting bypassed when you were at your prime in the past, but your employees didn't get the innovation they needed to elevate and continue forward with innovative ideas. I also think that when you take, um, and depending on the size of the organization, this probably already happens to a degree, but there companies work in a lot of silos. When you take your budget up to a higher level, you will quickly start to see that while adding headcount in, say, an HR department will feel like HR is spending more money, what you find is that other departments may, in fact, spend less as a result of that headcount. So you can't always, when you're planning that budget, don't stick in your world of, you know, HR or L&D only gets this much money. And I'll give you a great example. And probably one of the things I was so proud of, I was like, yes, I won. I wanted an LMS for a company because I knew that they needed, not because they only wanted electronic training, but it allowed us to track and organize all training delivery better by having an LMS system. And it took a ton of digging, but I was able to identify the first year $15,000 in savings after the purchase of the LMS, which was $150,000 based on the headcount or the number of employees that we would have used. So we were going to spend the $150,000 for the, the LMS, still save the company $15,000. The savings came from two other departments, well, three technically, because HAC ended up being in HR, but they were a different department to begin with. So as a result of building this system, we saved money in operations. We saved from the managers being able to do their job instead of running around trying to track SOPs. We saved um, the health and safety environmental team. We were able to free them up to do the things that they were hired for. Um, And we were able to save money on from the quality team to free up a couple of really critical players within that department in order to do the things that they were hired for and not running around making sure we were compliant. We were also, I don't know, able to, and these were these were harder to track costs. So we might have saved more money than what I just proposed to you, but it's harder to track that direct line for these costs. But We were able to reduce the amount of time for our social responsibility audits. We were able to reduce the amount of time 
to complete the CAPA action plans based on those audits because of failures. We were able to minimize how many people had to interact with the auditors because we had a system that we could pull a report from right away. So audits that were taking three days or 72 hours to complete were now being done in a day or a day and a half. And in a lot of cases, they could actually start auditing elements of um, learning and development before they even stepped in the building. They could already do that with some of the HRIS stuff, but now they were able to do that with the learning and development piece as well. So it was a shit ton of intangibles. And then my favorite thing, because I will never argue against orientation or like a, a live orientation. People need to talk to people on their first day of work, whether it's face-to-face or through Zoom. People need to be welcomed into your company. But what we were able to do was instead of having those managers and those HR teams talk about crazy stuff that people can read, like the 27 different perk policies that you could sign up for, which was really part of their orientation before, instead of walking through 10 minutes of where to park, we were able to make that stuff electronic so that those partners could actually come in and talk about expectations and company values and who we were and why this is a great place to work. And we were really able to create a warm and fuzzy feeling on that first day instead of just dumping into compliance-related checklists that people don't remember in the first place. So Maria, to wrap that thought up, I guess I could have made it a whole lot easier by saying particularly when you bring in an external consultant, what they're going to do is they're not just going to look at the cost that you're spending in that HR team. We're actually going to be able to show you that as a result of spending here, here's where you're going to save time and money in all of these other avenues. Yeah, you actually just rolled through like our last three topics within like all of that, which is awesome, Michelle, super efficient. So controllable costs, take a look at that, obviously, and identify where those are and inefficiencies within your organization. And if you can't figure it out, we're here to help or you should be reaching out, right? Or there's other leaders in the organization. I think consolidating leaders is going to be critical, but you know, taking a look at all the other components too, overtime, things that are happening that are really impacting business decisions and critical components. Your P&L, why is that really critical and important to take a look at? Obviously, when you're making decisions on business initiatives, like Michelle mentioned, I think going to each leader and other departments, when I, um, get on board to organizations, it's interesting because most of the leaders are like, oh, we need more training. We need more of this, more of that, right? And so they want to add facilitators to their organization rather than kind of peeling that back a little bit. And there's a lot of things that you can see in a P&L report, um, Michelle. And I think a lot of organizations are actually training their leaders on a P&L report um, because it's not something that they actually get development on. And I think that's a critical component because you can take a look there and be like, oh, we have a T&E budget that's really large. Maybe I scale back on not traveling once a month or twice a month and I can actually give it back to my employees. I mean, Michelle, what do you think of that uh, you know, component of the, the, the P&L? So I'm huge advocate 
that your leaders need to be taught what to look for in a P&L. And I always love walking into companies where they do that, where they're trying to educate and grow their employees or their, their leaders. And then I always cringe when they go into places where the only thing that they're taught is like something really short and quick, like good, bad, or ugly. I call it the stoplight. Like you get a stoplight report and you look at it and you say, oh, we're red. That means we're not doing good. The problem with that, when you take out that entire P&L education piece, is they know they're not doing good. <laughs> they don't know what to look at to figure out why. Um, so the more that people understand about that income statement, the easier it is for them to identify problems. Now, the P&L is, and guys, I've used uh, P&L and income statement interchangeably, so go with me on that. But it's another example of why you need to have not just a great facilitator, but you need to have a great instructional designer. Because I don't know if you've ever had an accountant try to teach you how to read a P&L. I have. It wasn't fun. Wasn't fun at all. And if you have employees who, you know, like the maths and the sciences weren't their thing, accountants are brilliant, but they don't speak in a language that most people understand. Sorry, guys, we love you. And it's why we hire you because you're experts. But you need somebody that can come in and automatically link the idea of that P&L to concepts they already understand. And sometimes that's actually a subject matter expert who's really good at looking at the P&L outside of an accountant. It, it is the craziest example ever, but when teaching up-and-coming store leaders at a retail environment, I would simply say, I need you to stop overthinking this. It's just like balancing your life, right? Money comes in, you get paid. You got a series of bills to pay, your power, your water, whatever, your cable or your overpriced phone and your fancy car. And then your goal is to not go in debt and hopefully have some more money at the end. And so if, if we build on the concept of money in, pay your bills, not be in the negative, hopefully be in the positive, then all you have to do is dig into those bills that you're paying. And that's where your controllable costs are. And also that's one of those places where you can tend to overcomplicate it. Really boil it down to three simples, three simple controllables. And I always hate starting with this, but it is usually in every business is your biggest expense and it's going to be your labor expense. It's your biggest one. Then you have supplies and then you have some form of equipment that you have to use regardless of your business. And depending on your business, you'll have percentages within those buckets that vary. Like if I am a restaurant industry, I probably spend a whole lot less on uh, machines and equipment and a whole freaking lot more on supplies. So it'll vary depending on those. But when you're able to really just kind of narrow it down into those buckets, people can start looking at what is necessary and what isn't. But Maria, from a from a support role perspective, you nailed it with that travel example. I think a lot of times you will 
something has just been the norm in the past, especially with remote teams. And it's like, no, you're supposed to see everyone on your team. And then when you start pulling it out, start crunching the numbers, you can start asking yourself multiple things. Maybe it is you're supposed to see everyone on your team every quarter, but do you have to spend four days there? Like, what are you doing under those other, on those other days to maximize your time? Are you going to see them when it's intentional, where both you and your employee is getting some value out of it? Or are you going and they're so busy on conference calls, you can't even spend time on their development while you're there. So I think peeling that piece back and saying, why are we doing this? I also think it it allows your leaders, I, I hate saying I think, I know this for a fact. It allows your leaders to make better recommendations. And I'll give you one example that happened in a real life situation. It was during the recession around the 20, 2007, 2008 timeframe. Um, and every corporation was trying to reduce costs and they always go with labor after they've packed support roles to the point that they can't get rid of support anymore. The next thing they go for is um, labor within the ops world, which is your biggest workforce in those cases, right? And they divided it up. They were trying to be super fair. And they were like, each district within the market needs to save $40,000 on labor this month, right? And because Jeff had an awareness of his income statement and understood his business and understood the impact of not just controllable, but even some of those I'm not going to call them non-controllable because in most cases, turning off your power, it makes your power bill a little bit controllable. So let's call them less controllable instead of non-controllables. Because he had an awareness of both those controllables and those less controllables, he was actually able to go back to his leader with written documentation that said, I am not going to cut my labor by forty, dollars $45,000 but I am going to save you $63,000 from this, 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 and this. And so as a result, sure enough, the cost went down. Um, He contributed more than he was asked to do. And yet he didn't have to reduce his team, his operational team, to the point that the customer experience suffered, that the quality of the product suffered, et cetera. If you're not taking the time to teach your leaders that, They're never going to be able to come back to you and say, I've saved you $100,000 a good way. They're just going to, you're going to come to them, you're going to say cut payroll by $40,000 and they're going to reduce everybody's hours and not really know why they're doing it. Yeah, it's a huge component for leaders to be totally educated and trained and developed to make the right decisions. I think, Michelle, you brought a good point where, you know, you can adjust and pivot. You don't have to just cut your labor. You take a look at other resources and probably save a whole lot more. So, you know, I I think, you know, great stuff here. If you want to dig into it more, reach out to us. But I think the takeaway from this entire series uh, or, or this episode in this series is, Focus on what's critical and component, dig deeper, 
into your budgets to invest more into your people in a different way in which you are able to do no matter what size of your business is, what size your budget is, and really continue developing your leaders to understand how they can take a look at things in a new light. So great commentary here, Michelle. Love it. And I can't wait for our next episode. We're going to talk about some great stuff. So until next time, listeners, take care. Bye. Bye. 